Judges chapter 10. The topic here, God's pursuit of his backslidden people illustrates for us that he is good. So the title of our message is, Scripture Tells Me I'm Into Someone Good. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, you are good, and I pray that we could do justice to that attribute of yours today. It's big, and it's broad, and it's deep, Lord. It's something that we can never fully understand, but we can see one aspect of it illustrated for us in this text, and it's a beautiful aspect. And I pray that having come in and encountered you, we would go out and represent you as good to those who are lost and perishing, as well as to those who have fallen away from you, Lord. You are indeed good, and we thank you for it. All that agreed prayed in Jesus' name, saying, Amen. That's one of the greatest advertising slogans of all time. I know you can finish it, so we'll have a little bit of audience participation here this morning. I know you love that. So I'll start it and you finish it. You're in good hands. Very good. How about this one? Good to the last. And whose slogan is that? Maxwell House, which is terrible coffee, by the way, but not craft coffee at all, but I had to throw that in. One more, and this one we have to sing a little, okay? I'll do the beginning, and you can just chime in anytime you feel like it. Mmm, good, mmm, good. That's what Campbell's soups are, mmm, good. All right, very, give yourself a hand there. I couldn't get anyone to sing first service. I walked off the stage. No, I'm just kidding. Because you're sharp, you notice that the key word in each of those slogans was good. It's a robust, comforting word that instills confidence. Christians use as a slogan the phrase, God is good. I don't think a day goes by I don't hear it said or read it on social media. It figures prominently in the recent popular Christian film, God's Not Dead. Two of the main characters say to each other, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. We get it from verses like the following. Psalm 31, 19 says, Oh, how great is your goodness. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 107, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Something I didn't know, according to A.W. Pink, and I quote, The original Saxon meaning of our English word God is the good. And so when we say God, we're making an exclamation of his goodness, of the attribute of God that is goodness. I got to thinking about good and God's goodness because it is one of the things we see illustrated for us here in chapter 10 of the book of Judges. The chapter opens with a quick summary account of two of Israel's lesser known judges, Tola and Jair. God in his goodness gave these two men to Israel to provide his people a measure of peace for some decades. Then the bulk of the chapter describes Israel being overwhelmed by several of her enemies. God explained to them that their subjection to their enemies was his doing on account of their sin. When Israel cried out to God, he answered them saying, I will deliver you no more. Verse 13. On the surface, God's response does not seem consistent with his goodness. It seems the direct opposite of goodness. Wait for it. And you see that it illustrates his goodness, leading them to repentance, after which God does powerfully deliver them. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God is good, and he shows it by looking out for you. Number two, God is good, and he shows it by coming after you. So let's take a look at God looking out for you. 
When Frodo first encountered him at the Prancing Pony, Aragorn had spent most of his adult life as an unheralded ranger protecting the borders of the Shire from the enemy. Of course, I'm talking about Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Aragorn says of his task, Travelers scowl at us, countrymen give us scornful names. Strider I am to one fat man who lives within a day's march of foes that would freeze his heart or lay his town in ruin if he were not guarded ceaselessly. As far as our world is concerned, it is because God is good that life proceeds on the earth day after day. God is on guard. His goodness looks out for his creation. If it weren't for his goodness, our enemies would do far worse than freeze our hearts and lay our world in ruin. Christian, I mean, knowing what you know about the devil and the fallen angels, principalities and powers and the wickedness and all that, how far do you think we'd get if it wasn't for the protection of God on a day-to-day basis? Not very far. In fact, even with God still restraining evil, once the devil is set loose on the earth in the middle of the tribulation, the place is pretty ruined by the end of 1,200 days. And so God is at work guarding us. One book on systematic theology asks the following questions. How can we explain the comparatively orderly life in the world, seeing that the whole world lies under the curse of sin? How is it that the earth yields precious fruit in rich abundance, and does not simply bring forth thorns and thistles. How can we account for it that sinful man still retains some knowledge of God and of natural things, of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue and good outward behavior? How can the unregenerate still speak truth and do good to others and lead outwardly virtuous lives? The answer to that question is that God is good, and in his goodness he preserves life in order to give men opportunity to be saved. Keep that very basic thought in mind as we work through verses 1 through 5 and see God's goodness preserving and protecting Israel. So verse 1, after Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Puha, the son of Dodo. Let's get your laughing done now. A man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, and he died, and he was buried in Shamir. Abimelech is named just ahead of Tola. Abimelech's story took up a verse in chapter 8 and then 57 verses of chapter 9. He was not even a judge. He was the least son of Gideon who promoted himself to be king by murdering his 69 brothers. Murder and destruction stain his career. The entire 23-year heroship of Tola is summarized in just these two verses doesn't seem right or fair. I want to know more about Tola, about a real hero raised up by God with a more than two-decade spotless record. I sort of like those, uh, you know, every now and then on Facebook or in a story where you'll see, hey, these are the real heroes, right? Not not, separate from uh, whatever you want to think of sports figures and athletes and people like that. That's fine. That's, uh, That's all entertainment. I'm not against any of that. But they're not heroes, There are real heroes. First responders are heroes. Those in the military are heroes. Firemen and uh, firefighters are heroes. Police officers, those are heroes. People who would take your place and lay down their life for you. And so I want to hear about, I don't care about Abimelech. The guy was a jerk. Created all kinds of problems, killed thousands of people. Let me hear about Tola, but we get very little. But that's okay I'd rather have a short epitaph as a faithful servant than a long explanation of my failure. I've told people this for years. If anybody ever wants to interview you on camera, just say no. 
and walk away, you'll be glad that you did. And not that this would happen probably in Hanford, but if you get approached to do a reality show, have you ever watched a reality show? Those people all come out looking like jerks. I can't think of anybody on any reality show that has a solid thing going on. Uh, you know, and, and they all end up in divorce and their families are exposed. Don't do it. Or if you want to do it, record yourself for a while and watch it. You'll be horrified. <laughs> Verse 3. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys, and they had 30 towns, which are called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. We talk about the American dream. It's something different for everyone, but we understand what we mean. These verses describe something like that in Israel at that time. There was a donkey in every garage. Everyone could have their own city if they wanted to because these children of Jair, they, they represented a time of prosperity. And you could look at them and see under this judgeship, under this heroship, this is what is possible. We can prosper. God's work preserved a 22-year peace and they prospered. God was good. He was obviously good to his people. Now... Some of you are thinking, if God is good, what about suffering and evil and all of these things that seem bad? Well, we declare God is good and are not ignorant of sin and suffering. In a way, sin and suffering highlight his goodness. And here's what I mean. God is perfectly capable of ending all suffering, and he could do it right now. But he's going to wait and do it at about Revelation 21. He's going to do it a little bit in the future. But when he does it, then his long-suffering with men to see them saved also ends. The fact that suffering continues through today means there is still time for God's goodness to reach lost souls and save them. It is good that God waits in his long-suffering because eternal separation from God is obviously far worse than any amount of suffering on this planet. And so uh, here, let me quote from A.W. Pink again. He puts it better than I can. He says, if man sins against the goodness of God, if he despises the riches of his goodness and his forbearance and long-suffering, uh, who is to blame but himself? Would God be good if he did not punish those who ill-use his blessings, abuse his benevolence, and trample his mercies beneath their feet? It's no reflection upon God's goodness, but rather the brightest exemplification of it when he rids the earth of those who have broken his laws, defied his authority, mocked his messengers, scorned his son, and persecuted those for whom he died. And so Pink has this idea that, that evil and sorrow and wickedness and suffering, they exemplify essentially the goodness of God in waiting to judge lost mankind so that he can lead some to repentance. The ultimate goodness of God, of course, is salvation in Jesus Christ. That's why at the birth of Jesus, the angels announced God's what? Good will towards men. God is good. Here was the one who was born to die for your sins and for my sins. It is good that when we were yet sinners and the enemies of God, he sent his son to take our place in death that we might live forever. Titus 2.11 proclaims, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Grace is the goodness of God in action. It doesn't just preserve the universe as a theater within which the drama of redeeming a lost race plays out. It also reaches out to men. Jesus once said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Paul the Apostle would go on to say 
that he is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. And what we derive from that is that through the cross, through his death and then resurrection, Jesus exudes a power that reaches into the hearts of all men and women everywhere for all time. A grace, a goodness that allows their will to be freed so that they can make a decision to trust or to reject Christ. And by his goodness, he therefore is drawing all men to himself. Grace is active. It works on the hearts of all men everywhere. Not everyone will be saved. Only those who believe in Jesus Christ. We don't preach a universalism, sadly. I wish it were true. Two things I wish were true that are not true from the Bible. Universalism and annihilationism. Universalism is the idea that in the end everyone will be saved. That is sadly not true. And we should all be sad that it's not true. But it is not true. There will be those who miss out on heaven. There's only one other destination. And annihilationism is the teaching that those who aren't fit for heaven... Uh, having trusted Christ, will simply be annihilated as if they never existed. I wish that were true. Anyone that you think of that you think might be suffering in hell, you wish they had been annihilated instead, but that's not the way it works either. There is no such thing as annihilation. There's only eternity, either with God or separated from Him. God is good all the time, and He is working to draw men to Himself. Now, God is good, and he shows it by coming after you. That's the bulk of the chapter now in verses 6 through 18. If I were to use the phrase relentless pursuit, probably only negative images come to mind. When I started this section in my notes, I I was going to write, God is in relentless pursuit of you. And then immediately I thought of the Terminator or the T-1000 liquid metal man after him. For those of you who've seen those movies, that is a relentless pursuit. They just keep coming no matter what you do. You can crush them and burn them and do all that. And and I thought, well, that's not how I want God to be portrayed, certainly. But he is in relentless pursuit, especially of sinners. And we need to suspend negative connotations about it because his goodness is revealed in it. First, as we've said, he pursues us through grace with the gospel to bring us to salvation. And then second, after you're saved, when you sin, his goodness pursues you to bring you to a place of repentance. In the book of Romans, where we are told the goodness of God leads to repentance, we see that the statement is made in the context of God withholding judgment that the human race deserves in order that we might repent and either receive him or return to him. One pastor put it this way, God's goodness is the reality that we have not yet experienced his judgment. That is what leads us to repentance. And so the goodness of God isn't just God you know, showering gifts on you and saying, if, if, if you come to me, I'll give you the Corvette that you always wanted, which hasn't happened for me yet, uh, you know, and, or different things. We have a tendency to think of goodness that way. The Bible presents God's goodness as, I haven't destroyed you yet. I haven't judged you yet. You haven't died and passed into eternity yet. You still have breath. You still have time. And it is good that I give you that opportunity because you don't deserve it. And yet that goodness that leads you to salvation, then after we're saved, his same goodness will lead us to repentance. And that's what we're going to see mostly illustrated in these verses. Verse 6, then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashereths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Now, I'm not sure if the years Tola and Jair judged Israel were concurrent or consecutive. 
localized or national, but the author of Judges, who we say is the prophet Samuel, he wants to emphasize that the Israelites sinned grossly at the first chance they got. Uh, they're like kids that you leave at home and tell them not to have a party. You know, I mean, you always wonder if that's ever going to really work. And so while there was a hero to lead them and to judge them and to fight for them, they, they were mellowed out. But as soon as that hero died, they went right back into worshiping the local gods. And it seems here if there was a god to be found among the Canaanites, find him or her, they did and serve them. I mean, they couldn't get enough of this. Uh, they were serving multiple gods, every god except their own. Verse 7, so the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. Do you think of God as having emotions? You probably do. It surprised me to know that theologians debate what they call the impassibility of God. Not impossibility, but the impassibility. Some of them argue that God does not possess feelings or passions. But the real question that they're arguing about is whether God's passions... Uh, and reactions are uh, caused by us. In other words, can we cause God uh, distress or emotional pain? Can humanity hurt God? Now, we're not going to solve that debate. It's an ongoing theological debate. But we can confidently state that God has emotions, and we're told over and over again in the Bible that he loves and that he hates and that he has compassion, that he grieves and that he rejoices. We know that... We can grieve the Holy Spirit, who is God. And so we can cause, I guess the word would be pain to God. And you see where that lead, theologians are going crazy right now thinking, I can't believe you just said that because what does it do to God? And, you know, but God says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I'm just kidding. You can't really do that. Don't think you're doing it. So it's a very interesting area of, of theology but here in Judges, it just says he's hot with anger. Uh, we can't think of God as losing his cool or overreacting. He's not having a mood swing. He's not manic depressive. Uh, in fact, since he's holy and good, his emotions must be so much stronger than ours in perfection. I'm not sure what this means, but in this case, God has a perfect hot anger against Israel. And what that does, it motivates him to act on their behalf for their good. So, for example, the last time you were a hothead, the last time you, you lost your cool or blew your temper, did you immediately say, now, I want to do what's best for you and what's right for you. I'll go ahead and pull over so that you can cut off somebody else. No, I mean, you're after that guy trying to cut him off. You know, our anger, our anger is bad. It, it leads us to do bad things. So God's anger, whatever that means, he's just, oh, I can't believe the Israelites. I'm going to have to do something good for them. It's, it's incredible, really, when you think about it. The good God did, you have to wait for this. It doesn't sound good, but it works out good. The good he did was to sell them into the hands of their enemies. So far, you're thinking, yeah, right on. But it's going to turn out. One way of understanding this is to say that God simply gave them what they wanted, of course. They were serving foreign gods, so Jehovah sold them to those gods by allowing their enemies to dominate them. He accelerated what would have happened to them anyway. At first, we don't see how this was good, but it was good, infinitely good. Verse 8, from that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel 18 years all the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. 
18 years is a long time to be oppressed. But it doesn't reflect so much on God as it does the Israelites. It took 18 years for them to cry out to God for help. In a minute, they're going to cry out and God's going to respond. But for 18 years, they were willing to be oppressed and subjugated to their enemies rather than return to God. You know, this is, to me, the heart of what I'm talking about this morning. Maybe you'll get it if I ask this question. Are you praying for someone who has walked away from the Lord? Is there someone in your life, maybe multiple someones, who, for whatever reason, is no longer walking with the Lord, but they're in sin, they're backslidden? Have you grown discouraged because that person seems no closer to returning to the Lord? Maybe they're even further away. Their life seems to just be going on as if they don't need the Lord. Certainly they don't want Him. After today, I hope you'll see that you can be confident that God is at work, even though you can't see it, and even though there seem to be no results. People are stubborn sinners. God strives with them, but He cannot overrule their free will. Keep praying for them. I'm not saying God won't act and keep acting in a more severe manner. That's what we're going to see. But first of all, you don't know what God is doing and how they're actually responding uh, and what's going on in their life. You just see what's outward. But here for 18 years, God was striving with his people, seeking to bring them back to himself. And they said, no, we're happy as slaves. We're just going to hang out here oppressed, complaining, depressed. We could be in the land flowing with milk and honey, everything. We could have 30 donkeys and 30 guys riding donkeys, but instead we're, we're going to let the Ammonites and these other people subject us. And so uh, don't underestimate the stubbornness of the human heart. Keep praying. Verse 9, moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Now, I like this. This marks an acceleration of the oppression. God allowed their enemies to subject them for 18 years. They continued in their rebellion against God, so God turned up the heat and brought an army against them, an imminent threat. Do you ever pray for people who are backslidden and say, Lord, do something, do something to show them their need for you? And what you're essentially saying in the context of this is, Lord, bring an enemy army against them. Encamp against them with the enemy so that they can see the horrible situation that they're really in. Because you know and I know that being with the Lord is better than anything in the world. And so that's what happens. God says, okay, 18 years. Why 18 years? That was just the way it was in this particular situation. And then God says, now I'm going to bring an army against you. You, you won't turn to me, so I'm going to turn up the heat. I can't force you to turn to me, but I can make it more and more difficult for you to ignore me. And it works. Verse 10, children of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. They make a strong confession. They use the S word, sin. They fess up to turning from God to idols. Way to go, guys. So verse 11, so the Lord said to the children of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines, also from the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Maonites? They oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. You basketball fans, you remember the mailman? 
Carl Malone, Utah Jazz. That was his nickname because they said he always delivered. Of course, they used it against him in the playoffs because he had trouble in the playoffs, as I recall. And they used to say the mailman doesn't deliver on weekends. And so don't... Some of these nicknames, they're not all that much fun. But anyway, uh, God delivered his people every time. Enemy after enemy is listed, overcome. But after each victory, his people always return to sin. Your flesh is powerful. And by flesh, we mean the unredeemed humanity that has a propensity to satisfy its lust in sinful ways because we don't have our glorified bodies yet and won't have them until the resurrection or the rapture. I used to think the longer I walked with the Lord, the weaker my flesh would get. In other words, you know, the stronger your spirit gets, the weaker your flesh would get until you didn't have to contend with it very much anymore. But I learned quickly that your flesh never weakens. It's always right there, just below the surface, ready to trip you up. And a case can be made that you actually, uh, it gets stronger. And by that I mean that as you grow in the Christian life and become more aware of yourself and the scripture, don't you find other things that are sinful that you never thought were sinful before? Attitudes, small attitudes, reactions, ways of thinking about things that the Holy Spirit is pricking you and saying, that's not from me, that's ungodly. And you think, oh, Lord, can I just, I, I've got the big sins, I think, under control, but why, why do you have to show me these little ones? It's because your flesh is always demanding to be fed and to be ministered to. And so we need to be those that crucify ourselves, die to ourselves. Without that, we're going to serve the various bales of our culture. Verse 13, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Wow. Did I just hear that? Hey, we just confessed. We, we turned from you to idols, and you're saying you're not going to deliver us? Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. This at once seems so unlike God, and yet so like him. It seems unlike God in that we always think of him as the father of the prodigal son waiting to run out and embrace his wayward child upon his return, wanting nothing from him in return. But it seems like God, in that he alone can divide between our soul and our spirit to know if our sorrow is merely regret or whether it is genuine repentance. Israel regretted their situation, but their confession was not accompanied by an attitude or actions of true repentance. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, or at least till I was about 12, till I had confirmation, and then I thought I was in. No matter what happens from that point on, you're a Catholic, you're Italian. I mean, come on. What could hurt me? And uh, I remember one time in catechism, I've told this story before, but I love it. I remember asking one of the nuns, if I forget some of my sins when I'm in confession, is that, am I going to still be forgiven those sins? I mean, come on. Oh, absolutely. Absolution covers all of your sins. I forgot so many sins. And it would always happen just before the green light would go on in the confessional. And you're sitting there. How many of you, you know, raise your hand. Have you ever been in a confessional? It's a little weird. Yeah, there you go. You're in there, and you can hear mumbling. That's... Then all of a sudden, the screen opens, and you're like, 
and you go through, you know, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been a week since my last confession because, you know, you're in catechism. You had to go every week. And uh, these are my sins. And I would rattle off a couple of things. And, you know, I, I think they thought I was lying. But I wasn't lying. I was forgetting. Yeah, that's it. Those, those are all my sins. All right, go out and do this and do penance. Yes. And then as soon as I get out, I think, oh, gosh, I should have told him that I cussed at my teacher, but oh, well, I'm covered, you know, and stuff. So Israel's in kind of a mode like that. Hey, we confessed our sins. What, what gives here? You're not going to deliver us? Verse 15, the children of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and God's soul could no longer endure the misery of his people Israel. So they repeat their confession, but this time they have a change of attitude. They surrender by saying, do to us whatever seems best. And they have a change in their action. This time they abandon the foreign gods and serve the Lord. Repentance means a change of mind about sin that leads to a change of behavior. It can be hard to recognize true repentance, at least for us to recognize it. Sometimes it's hard to recognize because we simply don't want to believe that it's that easy for somebody to receive God's forgiveness. Especially if they've hurt us, we want them to hurt a little bit. Now, we never say this. We don't say, well, I see you're repenting, but you need to bleed a little bit. You know what you did to me? Do you know how much you hurt me? I'm not, it can't be that easy. And, and so our default is, well, I don't believe you. Prove it to me. And, and just while we're on that subject, not, not a good way to go. Um, you know, if somebody repents, we're supposed to believe them. On the other hand, uh, there are people who repent and they don't have a genuine change of heart. Okay, I repent. Now I'm going to move back in. Everything's going to be just the way it was. You have to forgive me. Uh, ministry is messy. Have you ever realized that people are messy to deal with? You know, there's, there's no textbook cases. And so I've been in situations where in a marriage, one of the spouses has left or been unfaithful or whatever the situation is, and they repent. They want to come back into the marriage. And the, the spouse who hasn't really done anything wrong kind of is like the prodigal son's brother. It's like, hey, I, I'm not going to re- just take this person back in and believe in and all that. And, and so you have to kind of work with that. On the other hand, the person who sinned, they should understand how much they've ruined everybody's life. And it's not a time, if you're repentant, it's not a time to be demanding your rights. You're so happy that you're back with the Lord and that he didn't destroy you that you're willing to say, hey, whatever it takes, however long it takes, I'd be happy to prove to you that I, I really have a genuine repentance. I'm not demanding anything. Prodigal son's a good example. Upon his return to his father's house, he was willing to be a mere servant. When he woke up and came to his senses in the pig pen, he said, I would be better off in my dad's house as a servant. Maybe he'll take me back as a servant. He didn't go down there and say, hey, dad, bring out the robe, kill the fatted calf. I'm back, buddy. I want a party. And here's the guest list. All my friends, some of my friends from my uh, other life, maybe they'll get saved. And so he didn't have any demands other than he was willing to do anything that his father asked him to do. That is a truly repentant heart, a truly repentant attitude. 
The scripture here says God's soul could no longer endure the misery of his people. He was brokenhearted for his people. He had compassion on them, and he saw that their repentance was genuine. That person, those people who are backslidden and you're praying for them, your soul can barely endure the misery that their sin is causing them and others. It stresses you that God is doing so little as if he doesn't see them or care, but he does. He sees, he cares, but he knows their heart isn't repentant. He can see between the soul and the spirit. And so his soul is not in misery yet because they are not truly repentant. And he's saying to them, as it were, I'm not going to deliver you until it's real. And he's working. He'll bring armies if he has to, but there's a time element. God remains faithful in his goodness to lead to repentance. We need to think of the Lord as both a patient father of the prodigal and as the one who goes after his wayward children. On the one hand, like the father in the parable, he must wait for their heart to change. He must wait for them to become aware of the pig pen they have sold themselves into. On the other hand, we must believe his goodness is actively working to bring them to repentance. We may not see it, but we can believe it. He is bringing armies to encamp against them, imminent threats that are designed to point sinners to him for deliverance. And so then verse 17 and 18, then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead. The children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the leaders, or excuse me, and the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now these verses simply set up the next chapter. uh, And we'll find there that the man who answers God's call is a guy called Jephthah. But it's interesting, you can note that the Israelites had returned to a place of real faith. First of all, they weren't wondering if God would raise up a hero. They said, who is the hero going to be? They, they were confident that now that they had repented and were walking with the Lord, that no army could oppose them, but they just didn't know who the hero would be. And even that is a point of faith because they weren't even looking for the most heroic person. They just were waiting on God. Who's the hero going to be? It could be anybody. It could be a Gideon. Could be a Jair, could be a Tola. We'll just have to wait and see. But we know there will be a hero. And they were willing to fight. They said, who will begin the fight? Indicating they would follow the Lord's man into battle against any and all odds, knowing that the battle was already won. And so these people who had been sinning grossly for the past 18 years were transformed almost immediately into a people of faith ready to act. Repentance is such a powerful thing. People say, well, how do you know when it's happened? You know. I mean, it sounds silly. I mean, you know, I don't want to sound mystical. But when a person who has been sinning and backslidden genuinely repents, you know there is an absolute transformation in their life and in their attitude and in their heart. And it's uh, portrayed here by these people. They're completely different than they were just five minutes ago. God had shown them the depth of their sin. In his initial refusal to deliver them, he had shown them that they deserved only judgment so that his goodness could lead them to a genuine repentance and a return to serving him with their hearts, their minds, their souls, and their strength. Have you ever heard the phrase, the hound of heaven? How many of you have heard that phrase before in some context? A few of you. Originally, it's the title of a poem written by English poet Francis Thompson. One commentator said this about the poem. The name is strange. It startles one at first. It is so bold, so new, so fearless. It does not attract, rather the reverse. 
But when one reads the poem, this strangeness disappears. The meaning is understood. As the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase, with unhurrying and imperturbed pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace. And though in sin or in human love, away from God, it seeks to hide itself, divine grace follows after, unwearyingly follows ever after, till the soul feels its pressure, forcing it to turn to him alone in that never-ending pursuit. I'm going to close this morning with a couple of quotes from that poem. One concerning the backslider, he's talking, and then God is talking. And uh, bear with me because it's that old English which people would say is proper English. But anyway. So concerning the backslider, the poem says this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him under running laughter. But concerning God coming after that sinner, it answers... Whom wilt thou find to love, ignoble thee? Save me, save only me. All which I took from thee I did but take, not for thy harm, but just that thou might seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. Let's pray.